Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week's 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then Cosmo talks to Peter Goltz of O'Neill and Associates about the current infrastructure plan. And last up, two minutes with Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA on Air. Our deeper look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. Hello, the long-running official voice of OA on Air. Kyan, it's great to speak with you again. It's been a while. How are you? It's been a while. Very good. Very good. We are just screaming into summer at rapid speed. Uh, June is almost over. It's almost over. July, you know, with, with, with the, mask, <laughs> the masks are off. We're, we're flying towards the summer. July 4th is right there. And um, you know what I always say, like my dad used to, July 5th, summer's over. There you go. <laughs> my, A very negative my, Nancy approach there, sir. My annual cranky, I love, actually, I love summer, and I hate that it goes by so fast. So let's try to slow it down. Um, lots of interesting stuff uh, out there in the world of public affairs news this week, focusing on three things. Let's start with um, let's start with the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, pretty interesting ruling this week. Um, essentially, uh, and overwhelmingly laying down the difference between being able a school being able to regulate speech within school on school grounds, within the school environment of a student, and then beyond that. Um, it, uh, it's a cheerleader case, always like that. Cheerleader case excoriated uh, the, um, the, the Supreme Court, excoriated the school where this cheerleader was a student. She had um, posted a profanity-laced post on social media, mm-hmm. uh, and she held, and her lawyers held, the punishment of her speech off campus violated the first amendment and um this uh this cheerleader has come out victorious yeah i mean it was an eight to one vote uh in her favor uh big win for the first amendment uh which i think you know after the last couple of years and so much talk about you know the media and first amendment what we can and can't say people being silenced on social all of these things um this is a the good win uh, for public school students, for sure. She posted her uh, multiple F-bombs, I guess we'll call them, on Snapchat when she didn't make it to Varsity Cheerleading from JV. Uh, What I think is interesting is she never named the school. She never named the team, nothing. She just said the school, cheer, everything. Um, Made its way to the school. They tried to punish her for it. Her parents Food. Ultimately, they have won. Um, but it's it got me thinking to when I was in high school and sort of, you know, the the rules and the limits that are put around student athletes, um, cheerleaders, things of that nature, where what happens to you outside of school can affect you inside of school. Um, and I wonder if this changes some of those some of those yeah. policies that exist. But anything where we're talking about the First Amendment, I think, is always important. Um, And the way it is interlaced into social media now, especially, 
uh, it's a, it can be a very fine line. And in this particular case, Supreme Court found that um, the school overreached. I personally think it was the right decision. Not that, not, that my, not that my decision makes or breaks anything, but it seemed out of line for what what she said and what she posted. Yeah. Free speech champion Brandy Levy. She was 14 at the time. She Snapchatted. Bleep school, bleep softball, bleep chair, bleep everything. That's yeah. it. I mean, that can apply to anything. And the coaches cut her from the JV team. Big mistake. There it is. They took, they punished her just for that. And um, and here she is standing victorious uh, uh, on this case. Um, and, you know, and, and clearly demonstrating that the school overreached. Uh, I guess Clarence Thomas was the dissenting vote, but it's an overwhelming uh, opinion by the Supreme Court. Yeah, which is eight to one is tough to come by, uh, particularly in our currently very divided Supreme Court. So I think that in and of itself is impressive. It is also impressive to your point. This was a 14-year-old student. This was a young a young woman and her parents who said, no, something something has been done to us that is unjust and yeah. we're going to do about it. And I think I've said it on our, this podcast with you before. I, it's, it's always in... Like it's invigorating and it's great to see when young people are saying like, no, I'm not going to lie down and take this. This is wrong and I'm going to do something about it. And she made a huge difference um, to take it all the way. So kudos to her. Yeah. School had a, um, it's like a weak argument. You know, they, they said they needed to be able to discipline bullying and cheating, which can begin off campus. Well, there's definitely no cheating involved. And uh, this isn't, you know, who she? Who was she bullying? No one. She was. She was being a rebellious fourteen-year-old. That's part of the American way. So, <laughs> good on you, Brandy Levy. <laughs> so, all right, excellent. Um, let's uh, let's keep the train moving over here. Back to Massachusetts, Governor Baker. Governor Charlie Baker makes his first in-studio broadcast interview appearance uh, today. As we record on the 24th of June, WGBH, Radio Boston with Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. So that's a little bit of a milestone. Again, Cayenne, the masks are off. People are just rushing back to life. It's it's great to see. I know that there are people still we're losing every day uh, to COVID-19. But, um, you know, the corner has been turned. Uh, and 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 just just another little sign of normalcy, right? An in-studio interview. He hasn't done one in 14 months, so that's that's sort of one piece of it. Um, yeah, I think it's a sign that's that's obviously great to see. It's also could be seen as a signal of how much faith he has in being unmasked in a room now that everyone is vaccinated. And I think it's important that we see people in public settings and particularly senior officials making steps like that of going back to business as usual so that the rest of us can start to feel like we can do the same. Yeah. I think those dominoes are falling one by one, in some cases slowly, in some cases faster. I think public transportation will probably be the final frontier of, you know, and and it's still not even... It's still a ridership is just a 
a, a, a shell of what it was or just a, a tiny fraction of what it was. I think that's going to be a really tough one for people to feel comfortable with. I agree. I um, I I don't think I'm counting down the minutes or the days to getting back on a T or a train anytime soon. Um, despite the fact that I have been indoors in other settings without a mask and, and very comfortable. So it's, yep. it's an uphill battle for sure. Yeah. So just quick points on the interview. They talked uh, quite a bit about the Pearlstein report and the Holyoke soldiers home. Um, but just sort of fresh this week, the governor's proposal um, for a wait for it two month uh, August and September sales tax holiday in Massachusetts. That's right. Two months. That's a sales tax vacation. Um, that is a long time. That's a, that's a sabbatical. <laughs> that's a sales tax sabbatical. Um, and you know the, the state's got a pretty massive surplus, uh, unexpected. And, uh, you know, he wants to use some of that to, uh, understandably so, to, 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 to you know, promote retail sales to help small businesses to help promote uh the economy in a way that can help uh uh you know small business and retail um uh recover and uh, I, I you know it's it's a it's a big ambitious idea uh it, it, considering that every year there's some kind of faint opposition to the weekend long sales tax holiday but this mm-hmm. is a whole different this is a whole different ball of wax <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> we'll see what happens. I know there's there's already certainly Democrat opposition to it. People have suggested, can we do something like this for only smaller businesses with 30 employees or less, and, and not throw up, you know, a freebie at Walmart and uh, and and you know Target. Not to call them out, just they come to mind as large, you know, big box retail. So we'll see what happens. But what do you think? Two months. Two months is a very long time. Um, I think at first, at first note, like it sounds like, wow, that's really amazing. I I do think some of the Democrats that have spoken out in opposition are essentially saying there are a lot of people that could use additional money um, and could use a break other than those of us who just want to go out and buy big ticket items. And I, I think that there's a really good argument to be made there. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had one of our clients on the podcast talking about, you know, a work to increase TAFDC grants for families that are in deep poverty and, you know, families that are, you know, putting my sort of hat on, like those families need help perhaps more than you or I do in going to buy a couch for uh, at tax free. So it's it is a trickier argument below the surface than it seems at face value. Um, my guess is they'll end up somewhere in the middle. I agree. Right? I, I think, yeah, I, I think that there's, it's, it's tough to make an argument that, that with a big surplus and certainly a need for economic stimulus in any way, um, despite, you know, massive federal stimulus uh, that the state is, is going to uh, uh, benefit from, the surplus, hard to argue that you you, you can't or shouldn't extend the sales tax holiday in some way but um 60 days is is a long time but i think you're right i think we'll wind up somewhere in the middle and um and the economy and small business and uh, and maybe not just small business will will benefit as well as consumers yep 
All right, Kyan, let's talk about tuna fish. First of all, how big of a tuna fish and tuna fish sandwich uh, fan are you? Um, I was more so, I think, when I was younger. Now I, it has to be, like, the right place, the right quality, the right ingredients on an occasional basis. Yeah. And you? Makes sense. Yeah, um, so that, I, I, there's a little – it's an interesting, fascinating story about, uh, uh, number one, a lawsuit against Subway and, and the popularity of, uh, uh, of tuna in America. But I, I'm not a tuna fish eater. I don't recall that I have ever actually eaten it. I think I did when I was a child. I know, I know it's something that I would not eat. And it's popularly prepared with heavy doses of mayonnaise, which I loathe. Um, but I, I, it's just not yeah. a. Um, yeah, it, it's just not a not a thing that I that I really eat. So I, I I can't really pass judgment on good or bad tuna. Nonetheless, others are, and um, and and. Pretty significant story in the New York Times and, and other coverage about um, major lawsuit against Subway uh, by uh, by people that believe that their tuna is not all it's uh, um, advertised to be. Uh, it's also, I think, prompted a sort of quasi-global, uh, you know, national conversation on America's favorite canned fish. Yeah, so there's been a lot. A lawsuit was filed, essentially alleging that Subway's tuna fish is not, in fact, tuna fish, but a quote mixture of various concoctions, which end quote, which is um, quite honestly pretty disgusting to think about. Um, and you know this this is this is obviously not good for them as a company. Um, these are some very icky, for lack of. <laughs> allegations and not the first they have encountered in recent years about people feeling like they're not presenting themselves uh, as honest for the food they serve uh, for various reasons. Um, to their credit, Subway has said that the women who have filed this lawsuit are essentially shopping around different lawsuits within the like food and drink realm, they may not be wrong, but this might be something that these people have decided to take on. Uh, a lot of us, I think for a long time and for, you know, because it made sense, like you just kind of accept what brands and, and restaurants and eateries and things are telling you. Uh, and they're saying that's not the case and that it's a concoction. I mean, that's just, it's a very interesting word choice. Um, and it will be interesting to see because they also allege that not only is it not actual tuna fish, but Subway charges more for their tuna fish sandwich than they do other sandwiches, and yet it's not even a high quality product. Um, I don't, I don't know how this pans out. My guess is this is going to take a while. And what else are they going to start to look at? Because they're saying that they had lab tests to test their food um you know what's next like the chicken i don't know but this is an issue for sure and if they're looking at subway if i'm competitors of subway or peers i am looking around and saying what do i need to do to make sure that my restaurant that my establishment is shored up and i'm doing the right thing 
and checking all of these boxes. Yeah, it's 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 pretty. Well, number one, tuna is it's <clears throat> even though um, tuna fishing can be lucrative because the actual catch is massive, right? So you you haul in a five hundred pound tuna. It's it's a lot of product, but tuna is generally not a really really expensive ingredient, so not a lot of sense in 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 substituting it, at least from an economic perspective. Now it could be that it's so heavily processed that various samples, and there've been a couple of different um, sort of media orchestrated samples inside edition found that the specimens were indeed tuna. Uh, a different uh, uh, set of um, Test found that it was inconclusive, meaning they could not trace or find tuna DNA, but they couldn't prove that it wasn't tuna. It, it, it just there, there was, they weren't able to identify it from the sample. If, if you know, if you have watched any of, um, and maybe there needs to be a tuna episode of this, the food that built America, which is a terrific uh, series on um, on the History Channel, and you've learned about how various food fast food products are created and you know the chicken nugget or the chicken mcnugget from mcdonald's for instance is is essentially you know 100 percent chicken but ground up reprocessed reformed and basically turned into a different form those are not whole meat nuggets those are it's a chicken product by product the after they've re reformulated it Purely so they could shape it into little chicken McNugget shapes, right? And, and and so they can fry it the way they want, whatever. The point being, maybe the process that Subway uses for its tuna product or tuna sandwich uh, is just so heavily processed, so heavily, uh, you know, so heavily manufactured that it just eradicates the ease, the easily identifiable. Fiable tuna DNA. I don't know. I'm kind of making this up, but um, <laughs> if, if there is zero tuna, that is a massive consumer fraud. And I, it's hard to believe there'd be zero tuna in a in a sandwich that's, that shouldn't be an expensive, um, you know, food cost for the for the chain. Yeah. It, well, and the thing is too is they came out very as a company. Their their response to this is very strong, very adamantly against it. Um, saying they're baseless accusations that threat to damage their franchise, small businesses. It's a reckless and improper attack on Subway's brand and goodwill and on the livelihood of its California franchisees. I mean, it's there's some strong language here. Um, you know, when we are dealing with people who are going through litigation, a crisis, a brand issue, whatever it is, you know, the first thing we say is do the right thing and then talk about it. In a case like this, yep. you would think that they wouldn't come out that strongly if they didn't feel like they could support it, because if not, they are certainly digging a hole for themselves bigger than the one that was already created. Um, so from a, from a brand perspective, that would indicate to me that something that there is a there there, right? For them, like they're saying like, this is just so wrong because if it wasn't, I think they would have to admit some sort of mea culpa or blend here. Um, and I don't know enough about food science to be any sort of an expert 
more just the the public relations and brand side of things. And typically, if you do the right thing, you can communicate good things. So we've got a ways to go, though. Lawsuits take time. Yeah, nobody nobody would expect that the whole sandwich is. I mean, obviously, it's not one hundred percent tuna fish. There's going to be you know mayonnaise in there and celery, whatever the heck else you put in there, and what and, and fill and whatever else Subway might put in it. But I mean. There's got to be some tuna in there, or else <laughs> this is a big, big fraud. So I'm. This is kind of a fascinating thing to, to see how it unfolds. And I think you're right. If they come out that strong, you know, I, I think that they've got science that that will be able to show. Hey, look, say what you want about our sandwich. People love it. It's tuna fish, and it's also these things. But there's tuna in the sandwich. So leave us alone. Yeah, and there are people that are going to say, "Oh my gosh, I'm never going to eat a tuna fish sandwich from Subway again." And then they're going to be diehard people who say, I don't care. I like how it tastes. I've done just fine by now. So, you know, people, there's a, they have a loyal customer base to a certain extent. But again, I think that, you know, the problem here with any company is litigation takes time. And every time a lawsuit, something happens, it brings the story back up. So this is going to be around for a little while. We had a client a few years ago, man, a CEO of a large organization, uh, a, a terrific, terrific uh, person too. One of the one of the one of the greatest, you know, one of the nicest and uh, uh, CEO figures I've worked with over the. This guy loved, loved Subway. I mean, and we we, we had occasion to have some some client lunches, and it was all. We got to get Subway. Loved that, which meant his entire senior leadership team of this very large organization also loved Subway, whether they loved it or not. It, it was pretty funny. But big people, people love Subway. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go for Subway from time to time. I, I don't. I'm not a, a, a app, I'm not a daily communicant, but uh, I like a Subway sandwich. But some people <laughs> really love it. Well, I think they're counting on those customers to keep coming back. Agreed. All right. The great tuna controversy. Thank you, Cayenne. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321Go. Our program is recorded remotely in locations around the Commonwealth and the country. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. All right, up next on OA On Air, we're joined by Peter Gold, Senior Vice President with O'Neill & Associates in Washington, D.C., also a transportation and infrastructure expert. Peter, great to have, and also a, uh, a frequent guest on CNN Cable News Network to talk about transportation matters. Peter Goltz, great to have you on OA On Air. It's good to be here, Cosmo, and uh, as you know, there is breaking news, so, so this... Uh, that this discussion is really timely. Indeed it is. So we've been uh, sort of tracking uh, an infrastructure package uh, on Capitol Hill for some time now. And and just uh, within sort of the hour, as we speak Thursday, June 24th, really within the past hour or so, uh, this afternoon, President Biden has struck uh, an infrastructure deal um, with Congress we have been sort of tracking this over a period of time because there's been a lot of back and forth, but it looks like it's going to increase net federal spending about a little less than 600 billion. 
uh, for roads, broadband, internet, utilities, and other projects, uh, while leaving for a future time some other priorities that the president wanted to get in there. Uh, break it down for us as much as uh, as you're able. Sure. <clears throat> I mean, they, they really li- literally just put out the press release uh, within the past hour with, with some of the details. And you're right, it's $579 billion in new uh, in new money and uh, 1.3 1.2 trillion over eight years when they when they've put in all the reprogrammed money that that they're going to put into and uh, it really is focused on what uh, you'd call traditional infrastructure meaning roads broadband you're know, bringing uh, you know the internet to you know, the, the rural parts of America that, that have really uh, suffered over the past decade with, without access to the internet, uh, upgrading of the electric utilities and, uh, and significant uh, new infrastructure projects in terms of repairing bridges, repairing highways. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a good step forward. Uh, it's not the end of the fight by any means for Democrats. But it's a good step forward. And, and as much as, and it is very significant, as much as it's significant as an economic proposal, as an, a critical um, uh, you know, expansion of infrastructure, uh, as you said, increasing broadband access and, uh, and, and, and establishing initiatives that really can uh, help uh, uh, you know, encourage the economy over time. Politically, it seems very significant that we actually have a, you know, a product of some kind between five Republicans and five Democrats uh, to come to an agreement. Now, we'll see what happens if at least 60 senators can overcome any kind of uh, opposition or filibuster. But that's that's what bipartisanship looks like, right? Yeah. And and when you look at the list, it's absolutely right. There's they there are. 10 uh, Republican senators named on this uh, on this compromise, which gets them to right to the magic number. Uh, so I think I think we can be fairly confident uh, that that this bill is, is going to pass. And it really, you know, as, as much as Democrats wanted more and they will continue to fight for more, this is a pretty significant bill. You know, for instance, it's the largest investment uh in bridges and and roads since the construction of the interstate highway uh, uh, system, and it, it's going to also fund a uh, a network of uh, electric vehicle charges along the highways, uh, particularly in rural and uh, smaller communities where electric vehicles. I mean, if you were driving a, an electric vehicle in rural West Virginia. Uh, and you ran out of a charge, you were in trouble. You're going to have to pull over and plug it into somebody's house. So, so I think there's there's some really uh, good things going on. There's an undertone of fighting uh, uh, the effects of climate change. The idea of uh, electrifying thousands of school buses and transit buses across the country to reduce greenhouse emissions. I mean, these are, it's a pretty good bill. Yeah, no, it, it's a great point. I mean, if, if there's going to be um, 
well, there's consumer demand, there's consumer interest, there's a desire to um, uh, you know, move um, uh, you know, the, the vehicle market toward more electric vehicles. You need to have the infrastructure, you need to have the ability to go across country. And I, and I think that's, the, that's kind of the litmus test. You need, you need to be able to get coast to coast and north to south um, not, not on one charge, but, but, but being able to refuel, it's a simple thing. It's a simple concept. Um, and that, that's been the Achilles heel of, of, of hydrogen fuel, uh, um, vehicles. It's creating the infrastructure and the commitment. So that's a big part of this 312 billion for transportation, 865 billion broadband, uh, another 55 billion for waterways. Um, Got forty billion in there for the IRS to uh, increase enforcement to uh, produce a net gain of revenue of a hundred billion. I can think of a few people that uh, could, yeah, could do all without these, that. All these, uh, all these fat cats that have been uh, uh, ducking the IRS and making uh, inappropriate uh, <laughs> the, the deductions are are, are going to the, the IRS is going to come knocking again. And uh, I think uh, I think the the sources. Uh, for, for for revenue is uh, is creative, uh, and uh, you know we'll we'll deal with uh, taxes uh, on the wealthy later on. I think it's a good step. I think the country should feel good, and I think it's uh, you know it's a win for Biden, and it's a it's it's certainly a win for the Senate. Indeed. All right, Peter Goltz, O'Neill and Associates, transportation expert. Great to have you on Way On Air. Great conversation. Look forward to doing it again. Thanks, Cosmo. Whenever you call, I'll pick up the phone. All right, thanks. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. Two minutes with Cayenne and Tom. Two minutes with Tom and Cayenne. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Good, good. It's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken, so it's good to talk to you. It's always good talking to you, and today there's been lots of news roaming around the world. Uh, one of the things being that uh, Speaker Pelosi announcing a select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol, um, obviously coming after previous discussions kind of failed and weren't agreed upon, and she's you know taking it upon herself and in her leadership role to make a decision to go forward anyways. Um, why is this important? And obviously you have been a supporter of Speaker Pelosi for a long time. I feel like this is one of those reasons why. No, it, you know, it really is. I, I will, for the life of me, always wonder why the Republicans who sat and watched as as witnesses on hand, you know, that, that insurrection at the Capitol building on January 6th, and refuse then to recognize it or to investigate the reasons for it. Capitol Police in the building were hurt. Uh, a couple of people passed away or, 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 or were killed. Um, how one can turn their back or a group of people can turn the back on that activity, on that insurrection, on that takeover of the nation's capital for the first time in decades or, or over a hundred years it's just a, it's overwhelming to me. So I think what Speaker Pelosi is doing is really trying to give uh, historians an opportunity to understand what were the seeds planted in order to have that happen. There were there were reports that 
earlier in that week or even before that, um, you know, reports were coming forth that they could expect some amount of, of violence and insurrection and that the, that, the, that the number of people that were coming to Washington to create havoc and disruption, uh, it, it was known. Uh, it was known by police departments. It was known by the Capitol Police. It was known by people at the Capitol and outside the Capitol who are involved with security and and uh, and and peace. I I I just think what she did was was the right thing to do. I'm only sorry that it wasn't a bipartisan a bipartisan effort. I, I think that's too bad. And I think after the report is done, I think we can all surmise that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump are going to say that it was it was left of center Democrats who wanted to call history it's their history and not the American history. And I'm sorry. I just I just don't abide it. I don't get it and I, I and I will not understand what they've done. Quite simply, I find it sad. Um it is first of all I think a testament to clearly what what it what it appears that they are scared of what would be found. Um, I can't think of any other reason why, you know, they were all victims that day. They were all targeted in some way, shape or form. We're talking, you know, young staffers, people had their children in the building. I mean, it's just the idea that I remember watching, as I'm sure we all do watching the news that day and just being devastated. What a dark, dark, dark day that was for our country and democracy. And the idea that we can't come together in a bipartisan effort to say, let's figure out why this happened, how this happened, and what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. Like sad and disappointing is really the only words that come to mind. It's it's just almost unforgivable. This should be a no-brainer, one would say. It should be a no-brainer. It should be bipartisan. Um, it should be about American history. As you say, it was a very dark day in American history, if not the darkest. And to have that insurrection just have the, have the flames of that insurrection fanned by people in government. I'm talking about not only the president and people within his staff, but people within the Senate as well, walking amongst those people, egging them on. I, I just, I don't get it. Um, and I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm sick that uh, this... It's going to be reported by one half of the of the population of this country, by one half of the of the two party system, you know, of one half of people who should care. Uh, anyway, I, um, I guess we've said enough about it, um, and it's kind of a it's kind of a sour note to be talking and giving out two minutes on, but it's an important note, and it's it's important for history. Mm-hmm. Kanye, okay. thanks. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Hey, Diane, there'll be a brighter day. Yes, there will. Yes, there will. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.